Let's open our Bibles up to uh, Romans chapter 10 <clears throat> as we continue looking at all that Paul had to say. I told you the next three chapters, Paul's going to continue to deal with the issue of the Jewish people. And I really feel for Paul, every time I've taught through Romans, I feel his pain, you know, because the first people that you want to reach with the gospel, and so often is the truth, is your family and your friends and the people that are the closest to you, the people you feel camaraderie with, the people that you have blood with. And that should be the way it is. It really should be. We should have a deep, deep desire to see the salvation of our whole families, friends and those things, you know. And Paul gets right to the heart of, the, of, of this when he starts to reiterate. If you remember back in chapter 9, he started off chapter 9 the same way, that my heart for them is that Israel would be saved. And so he starts off here again, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for Israel is, that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul again, as you read this, reiterates his heart's desire to see Israel saved. Paul takes no pleasure in the fact that his fellow Jews had stumbled at the stumbling stone as we read back in Romans 9.32. Why did they stumble? Because Paul's going to talk about the issue of hearing and hearing coming by the word of God. And why, you know, if it's that simple, if the gospel says, why did Israel miss it? Why did the Jews miss it? Why? Paul wonders that himself. You know, he, he, it's, hard for him to understand. it's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to grasp even why people, let alone the Jewish people. I tend to understand, as Paul will explain to us, the basic idea of why, but and it's pretty much the same even for non-Jews. Why they miss it? It's too simple. That's why in the last chapter we read, you know, it's scandalous. You know, we read that in the Greek, you know, it was a scandalon. The gospel was a scandal. Why? Because it's scandalously easy. But we want to complicate it. There is something in mankind, I don't care whether you're Jew or Gentile, there's something embedded in us that says, I have to do something. I remember as a young, young Christian, I was um, not very old in the Lord, and I found myself working in my first radio station, uh, which was a Christian radio station. And, uh, you know, I was just doing, running the board and helping other people, doing prayer line and that kind of thing for other pastors. And uh, just pretty much at that time, minding my own business, doing my little thing. Had this one pastor, his name was uh, Frank Burlow. Uh, later he became my pastor, became a close friend of mine. Uh, but I remember when I first met him, you know, he, he was just one of those generous guys. He just walked in the Spirit, and I mean that sincerely. He really was led by the moving of the Holy Spirit. He had no idea how broke I was. He, he had no idea. I never walked around poor-mouthing God. And I would encourage you not to do this. You don't do that. I'm throwing this one in for free. Don't poor mouth God. I hear it all the time. Sometimes people will, you know, how you doing? Well, you know, this is broken, that's broken. Do you not realize what you're saying at that moment? What you're saying at that moment is God is not providing. That's not true. Sometimes circumstances can call it, cause us not to see the blessing of God. Don't look at the circumstance. If you look for a blessing, you will have the blessing. 
You know, what's he tell us in James? Ask and you shall receive, but ask nothing wavering. You know, he says, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. Believe. God is faithful. See, this is where belief comes in. We'll get into that later on. But it's that strong belief, just clinging to it. I'm not talking about assenting with the mind that something's true. I'm talking about that heartfelt belief. And there's a vast difference between the two. And this is where the Jews stumbled. Paul says that his heart's desire was to see them saved, but they stumbled at that stumbling block. They have a zeal for God, you know. Paul's desire for Israel's salvation was not in word only. I want to point this out before I move on. But it manifested itself in action. You know, look look up there in verse 1 there. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer, if you're taking note, mark prayer, look at that. His heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So often, you know, we we have a heartfelt something for somebody or maybe a situation, but we don't take it to prayer. I've heard people say, well, you know, all you can do is pray about it. No, listen, the best thing you can do is pray about it. You know, there's a a movie out. I haven't seen it called The The War Room. I guess it's about that, you know. And I've heard that it's a great movie. And anything that would endorse prayer as being the number one place you want to go, I I would endorse as, as long as that prayer is, is in Jesus' name, you know? I mean, that's what you want to do. But you want to do that in prayer. Paul was sincere. Paul cared about his people. He cared about the Jews. And he manifested that care in prayer. Care and prayer go together. They just do, you know? He, he meant it. Paul didn't just care for his brethren. He prayed for them. You know, he did so, and he did so regardless of how merciless they had been to him. Keep that in mind. He prayed for these people, man, who had treated him mercilessly. You know, they just were not very friendly to Paul. Like I said, every time Paul went to a synagogue, one or two things happened. A revival or revolt, <laughs> you know. And sometimes he wound up stoned out of it, you know, because he just had such a desire to see them, you know, come to Christ. They have a zeal for God, he said. Paul readily recognized this, and I think this is so cool. He recognized the fact that the Jews have a zeal for God. Zealousness. We've heard that. I like another term. It's the same, it means the same thing. Radical. You hear that used a lot nowadays on the news. Radicalization. They're radicals. The first radical that ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, he was a radical. He was so radical that he left no place for any person to be on the fence concerning him. Matter of fact, he was such a radical at one time that he had upset an entire government, upset an entire religious organization because he said one thing. He said, you are either for me or you are against me. Basically, he drew a line in the sand and said, pick a side. You know, that radical was Jesus Christ. He was radical. Jesus made radical things. He said radical things. And yet, we hear that word, and sometimes we're almost offended by it. We need radical Christians, radical conversion to Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about crazy radical, because there is a crazy radical. What's that look like? Watch the news. You see people who have some format that they go, go by, in this particular case, the Koran, and they'll read it, and they call them jihadists, or the news calls them radical Muslims. 
Well, I would tell you what they're doing is they're taking the word, because I've studied the thing for years. They're simply taking the word that's written in it, and they're applying it literally. Literally. Okay? Without, because it's not an inspired, it's not an inspired book, so there's no love in it. It's all. Here's your rules. Here's what you must do. And here's what you'll get. And notice the sensuality. You know, in the book of James, he talks about the things which come down from heaven. He said these kind of things that don't, when, when we start looking for blessings, some of the, he said these types of things are sensual. They're, they're wicked. You know, when you can lure a man to commit murder in the name of sex for eternity. Think about that. Do you understand? That's what they offer. Sex for eternity. Oh, yeah, with virgins. Oh, yeah. Seventy of them. Now, now, let me tell you the madness of that. Let me just throw this one out, okay? This is this, now, think about this. Right? So here's one they haven't thought of, okay? And they would realize the error of their way. The Old Testament, we saw many guys, David included, and some of the other guys, who gave into polygamy. They gave into it. God said, don't do it. The kings were not to have multiple wives. They weren't supposed to, but did they do it? Yeah, they did it. Do you know what the punishment is for having more than one wife? Do you know what it is? Anybody? No. It's more than one wife. That's right. <laughs> What's the penalty for having more than one wife? Having more than one wife. That is the penalty. Can you imagine 70? Now you know why Solomon kept him in a house far, far away. And it almost drove him to suicide. I mean, you know, this is the craziness. But it, you see the, the vicious and sickness of that kind of zealousness that is just about what? Rules and regulations. No love in it. It's crazy. It's sick. It's, it's crazy. But Paul's talking about a radical, a zealousness. The Jews had a zealousness for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. And so many people today within the Christian church, and we sit back and go, well, the poor Jews, they just don't believe in Jesus. Well, no, they don't. A lot of them don't. A lot of them do. You know, I'm living proof of that. You know, but the fact is, is that it, the reason is because it's not according to knowledge. But guess what? A lot of Christians fall into the same category, gang. They fall in the same category. They have a zeal for God. It just isn't according to knowledge. One of the greatest scriptures that I think that I've ever read, and I'll, I'll give it to you. I'm going to read it. You can write it down. It's Hosea 4.6. And here's what the Lord said. He said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Thou that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Mm, stout words. Lack of knowledge. Now, zeal but no knowledge. This is what the Jews had, Paul said. Paul would fit this description himself. I want you to understand it. Prior to his conversion. Prior to his conversion, Paul was the most zealous or zealot that there was. You know, you go back and read Acts 9, 1 through 20. And Paul was zealously persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He was putting people into prison, men, women, and children causing some to be put to death. One of his greatest testimonies, and one that he felt sorry for the rest of his life, was when he held the coat of Stephen while they stoned him. He regretted that. But at the time, he felt that he was doing God a service, which Jesus Christ prophesied even in the Gospels. Jesus told his own disciples, he said, there will come a time, brethren, when those who put you to death will think that they do God a service. Paul the apostle, before he was the apostle, was actually fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus had spoke on his road to Damascus when Jesus finally caught up with him and his whole life changed. But he was a zealot. He was zealous. But it wasn't according to knowledge. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't know the Word of God. I want you to understand that. Now, a lot of people don't realize this. The Jews, to this day, I'm talking Orthodox, <clears throat> we have mezuzahs. Anybody know what a mezuzah is? It's a mezuzah is a little uh, thing you put on your doors. Uh, basically, for the most part, it, it, if you buy a good expensive one, it'll have a handwritten copy of the Ten Commandments on the inside of it. And depending upon how, how well that is written will depend on how much it costs. So if there's no, you know, if it's written very nicely, then it'll cost, but you can print them. I, I used to just make copies on the machine and roll them up and spend them in there. Mine were cheap. So, you know, but I'm not orthodox. So anyway, I'm a Christian. You know, but, but, you know, it's cool because, you know, God told them in the law, you know, to place the word upon the doorpost of their house and upon, you know, uh, other, and so they did that. And they also have phylacteries. You, you know, the New Testament talks about this. A phylactery is a little box, if you've ever seen it, it's a little, made out of leather, and they wear them on the tops of their hands and one on their forehead. Sticks out about that far. Looks a little odd. Have to admit, it's a little strange. It's not much of a fashion statement, you know. But what do they do with those? They, they have the law written and they roll it up and they fold it up and they put them in these little boxes. So their knowledge of the Word of God was there. That's what I want you to see. They, they, they were surrounded by it. So when Paul says that they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, what he's not saying is that they didn't know the Word. Oh, they knew the law. They know it too well. They know it so well that many of them could recite it front and backwards. Keep it in mind, gang, that back during that time, Many times when they would go into the synagogue or even into the temple, the word of God would be read and they would stand for six hours. We gripe about an hour and a half. They would stand. We gripe if there's no paddings on the pew, you know. But they would stand and they, but this was a regular thing. And so they knew the word of God. That's what I want to drive home to you. It, their lack of knowledge wasn't the lack of knowing the word. It was a lack of understanding it. It's that knowledge of what it meant, what it represented. And so often today, even within the Christian church, we had the same problem. You know, there's nothing worse. Think about a Jew who comes to Christ, who, who, who really grasps the grace of God, and it says that, the, that Jesus Christ is the end of the law to those that believe. Man, that is good news to an Orthodox Jew. Believe me. His whole life just changed completely. But then imagine him coming into a mainline denominational church, and they're going, well, yeah, you're not in the law. But here's a new set of rules and regulations found in the New Testament that you have to go by. And they're preached just as stringently as they were in the Old Testament. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what happens. And that's not according to knowledge. Because that's not what the book's about. You know, the Bible in its entirety, Jesus said, low in the volume of the book, all 66 of them, it is written of me. And yet he said, he told, he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, look, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life. In them you think you have life. But it's the scriptures that speak of me, and yet you will not come to me that you might have life. This is why they stumbled. Jesus said, you search the scriptures. They knew them. Their lack of knowledge wasn't a lack of the knowing of the word. They searched them thoroughly. He said, because in them you think you have life. The law brings no Life, the law, brings condemnation and death to any man who tries to live by it. Why? Because you can't. Because it demands perfection. Complete perfection. 
And there's only been one man who was able to do it, and that was Jesus Christ. And vicariously, we get to be a partaker of that, a benefactor of all that he has said and done. That's the beauty of the gospel. But the Jews had this zealousness, he said, but it wasn't according to knowledge. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, he said. Because of that, they were ignorant. Now, there's a vast difference between ignorance and stupidity, and you have to get this. Ignorance means what? You don't know. You don't know. Stupidity means you know and you do it anyway. Okay? But ignorant, there's nothing wrong with being ignorant. I've been ignorant about a lot of things, and I probably still am. But that's where a continual learning comes from. That's why you always want to be a student. You know, have a heart that's teachable. There's always new things. Somebody's always got something they can show you. Somebody older has been down a road maybe a little farther than you have. You can hear a lot. And sometimes it even, out of the mouth of babes comes great wisdom. So be a student. Be willing to learn, you know. But they were ignorant of God's righteousness. I emphasize that word ignorant. Like I said, because there's a vast difference between it and stupidity. Israel was, and still is in part, ignorant of God's righteousness. Thus, they go about trying to establish their own righteousness, which Paul has already illustrated just how futile this is in the first few chapters of Romans. He's laid it out. It can't be done. He said plainly in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No means what? No. None. No flesh is going to be justified. You can't do it. Many Christians make the same mistake. Now, when we talk about works, you know, we but Doug, faith without works is dead. Yes, it is. But one produces the other. It doesn't, you, you, you heard the old saying, don't get the cart before the horse. And that's often what people do when they're dealing with the issue of works and with faith and those type of things. They wind up putting the, the, the cart before the horse. They want to do, do something for God. You know, we can see it in our mega churches today because all they want to do is come up with a brand new program. What's the new program? Let's have a brand new program. It, it, surely that will bring them in. Surely that will fill the seats. Let me give you an old adage that an old preacher who pastored a church of about 10,000 people told me. He was my pastor for years. And here's what Chuck said. He started off with a church of 25 people with no intention of doing nothing but teaching the Word of God. And here's what he said. Whatever you bring them in with, you will have to keep them with. You bring them in with programs, and you will have to keep them with programs. You will have to keep getting bigger and better and doing it more flamboyantly than anybody else to keep them. But you bring them in with the Word of God, and the Word of God never changes. When people come to be fed on the Word of God, then it itself is the supply. It's the draw. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So often, because we're living in a society that wants that instantaneous gratification, we want to come to a place where we come empty-handed and we say, fill me up. When the Holy Spirit says, come, come as you are, but bring what you have with you. All your baggage, all your problems, come into the body of Christ. Come and feast on the word of God. He says he sent his word and he healed them. It was his word that heals you, man. Let's give them the word of God. That's why every morning when I, when I do lead worship and I get to pray when the pastor's come, you'll hear me say it. Lord, anoint this man. Let us see Jesus. You know, I used to have a little sign on the top of my pulpit. 
And, I, and it wasn't some idea I came up with. I heard another, learned from an old pastor. And he had a little plaque that made it said, let them see Jesus. What a reminder to any man who stands in the pulpit. Let them see Jesus. They don't care about me. I'm here to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. I want to build up the Lord. I want you to see him and all that he's done for us. And, and any preacher should want to do that. But as far as preachers go, uh, we're going to get to that here in a minute. <laughs> and hopefully it'll be a challenge to you. But they were ignorant of God's righteousness. They went about to establish their own righteousness. Paul made it plain, it can't be done. They have not submitted, he said, unto the righteousness of God. Well, what is the righteousness of God? Now, this is a really cool one because even in Orthodox Christianity, when you, when you start dealing with the issue of righteousness by law or, or righteousness by um, the law or, or by faith, you, you get this mixed bag of what, what is it then? What is the righteousness of God? Well, I'm going to give you a simple answer. It's found in Matthew, and it was Jesus that actually said it. And you know the verse, and yet not many preachers come to this because they're not Jewish. But let me give it to you from a Jewish perspective. Here's what this Jew, Jesus Christ, an itinerant rabbi at the time, traveling, here's what he said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the righteousness of God. So therefore, when he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he was pointing to himself. He was declaring to us that if we will seek the kingdom of God and seek him as the righteousness of God, then all these things are added. That is the righteousness of God. He is the Alpha, the Omega. I couldn't give you all the things that Jesus is in the law. He's the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's everything to us. He's our righteousness, our justification, our sanctification. It's him. It's all him. That's what the righteousness of God is. It's by faith. And how do we receive that? Because we have placed our faith upon him who is worthy and has done all that there is. And everything he did was sufficient to save to the uttermost those that come to him by faith. Simply relying and trusting and clinging to Jesus Christ is all it takes. But what about works? Well, works comes in because you know what? I'm a grateful kind of guy. When somebody does something for me, I'm grateful. And Jesus said it this way. He said, he that is forgiven much loves much. Man, there's nothing, but we just celebrated Christmas. And, and most of us, you know, we have that person or maybe several that we just want to do something for. You know, sometimes money stops us from doing it. I, it did me this year. I had something really I wanted desperately to buy, but I just didn't have the thousands that it would take to buy it. Not yet, but it's coming. You know, it's coming. I wanted to, though. I desperately wanted to. And if I'd have had it, I'd have wrote the check right there. Why? Because I just want, I want a lavish, exuberant love upon my wife. Why? Because I love her. Just, I, I just want to do that. But you know what? God does the same for us. Except he doesn't have to write a check. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he lavishes his love on us. He wants to do that. He loves to do it. Jesus said it is his good will to give you the kingdom. And he has through Jesus Christ. 
you know, they were ignorant of God's righteousness because they went about to establish their own. And we often make the same mistake. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, that doing anything is bad. Do not misunderstand me. I always laughed at Calvary Chapel because people would come in and everything would, like here at this fellowship, we have a great bunch of, of servers, people who understand serving. But there's other people who come in and they see that and they think the church fairy did it, you know? They think the church fairy does the bulletins and the church fairy vacuums the floor and the church fairy waxes, cleans the bathroom. No, those are called servants. And they do that, you know? But that's, those are good words. Those are things that we do or maybe feeding the poor or somebody across, whatever that thing might be. Just let it be done from gratitude not because we're trying to earn something from the Lord. You couldn't earn God's love any more than what it is. He loves you so much. He's already done so much, you know? And so often, I, I understand the Jews in part having that mindset. They kind of grew up that way. But you know, as we come into the, into the Christian church, it is so heart-sickening to somebody who understands the law to see somebody who has been given the grace of God and the freedom and liberty in Jesus Christ willingly be in bondage again to the same thing only under a different name. There's an old adage called a rose by any other name is still a rose and the law is still the law whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New if you make it that. Man, I could quote all kinds of verses from the New Testament out of context if I wanted to and lay the guilt trip on you like you've never had. Just turn me loose on Hebrews chapter 6, about the first five or six verses. Oh, my gosh, if you don't understand the law when you get to that, it'll make a Christian cling to the cross so fast it isn't funny and question his own salvation if you don't understand it. But it really says just the opposite. It really tells us about the love of Christ. So once again, we don't want to do that. Paul's going, look, these guys had a lack of knowledge, a zeal. Yeah, they wanted to do stuff for God, but it always led them in the wrong direction. And then what did it do? They went about trying to establish their own righteousness because they would not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Because you have to do that. You have to submit yourself to the, to the, to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the work, the finished work that what he's done. How do you do that? You go, hey, if I was left to my own self, I'm going to hell. That's all there is to it. Even on my best day. And I used to tell people, that even when I was pastoring, when I was at the height of my quote-unquote success, on my best day, compared to Jesus Christ, I failed miserably. And there isn't a man behind the pulpit or a person sitting in the pew that doesn't or cannot say the same thing. But so often we don't believe that. Because we know that so-and-so down the block, well, they did this and I've never done that, you know. My... You know, my, my sin isn't as bad as yours. Or my sin on you looks so much worse. <laughs> That's usually what it is, you know, because I make excuses for my own. That's just people. But we really don't want to be like that. We want to realize that everything, we are totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. Verse 4, he says, for Christ is the end of the law for, take a note, underline four, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness, which is of the law, that a man who doeth those things shall live by them. And if you take a note, you need to underline that and highlight it if you got a highlighter. <laughs> shall live by them. But the righteousness, which is of faith, speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. 
Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The end of the law for the believer. The establishment of acceptance, righteousness, and ultimately justification by the keeping or the works of the law has ended with Jesus. That's what he's saying. Not that the law itself has been put to an end. Don't make that mistake. Paul's already told us the law is good, it's just, it's holy. So it's not that the law came to an end. It only came to an end as a means of righteousness. That's why Paul says that Moses said, if any man's going to try to obtain law or life through the law, you must live by it. Now here's the problem. You have to do it perfectly and you have to do it completely. And then you got a little thing hanging over your head called James, the half-brother of Jesus, who said this. He that stumbles in one part of the law stumbles in it all. So all 613 laws you would have to keep perfectly and completely. And I don't know about you, but I couldn't even begin to probably do five completely and perfectly. So once again, what Paul's telling us is that don't do that. Don't try to say, oh my gosh, you know, that uh, it's possible to achieve righteousness that way. Well, it was for, yeah, Jesus, who was perfect, who never sinned. He was God incarnate in the flesh, you know, so he did it for us. But it's the end of the law for us trying to obtain acceptance by God. The man who does those things, he says, are going to have to live by him. Like I said, if you want to go back and read, it's in James uh, chapter 2, verse 10. The righteousness of faith, contrary to the righteousness by law, which is predicated upon one's ability to keep it completely and perfectly, like I just said. The righteousness of faith is predicated upon the fact that Jesus did it completely and perfectly. It is predicated upon his works and not ours. It is received by faith when we trust all that Jesus Christ has done to satisfy the law and it was sufficient to save us. You know, the Bible says that he's able to save to the uttermost those that call upon his name. So receiving Jesus is simple. There's no work that you have to do. You simply believe and receive. It's a very simple thing. It's not that we have to ascend into heaven or to descend into the abyss to gain Jesus, is what Paul's saying. We believe it and we receive it. Now, once again, the difference of belief is simple. You know, there's two words used for it. In the book of James, you know, he says, thou believest that there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. That word there is talking about an ascension with the mind, to acknowledge that something is true, okay? John 3, 16 is a little bit different, where he says, you know, whosoever believeth in him will not perish. That belief is a little bit different, because that belief, not only does it mean to assent with the mind to the truth of a matter, but it means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to. That's that heartfelt belief. There's a vast difference. I've said a million times, I'll, I'll say it as often as I have to, heaven will be missed by some by 18 inches. That's the distance from here to here, because it never migrates. Because it's not enough just to know the truth of the gospel. It's not enough just to know that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not enough to know. You have to believe. And that belief is a heartfelt belief. It's something that transforms a person. Every one of us who knows Jesus Christ, who's had that born-again experience, we can attest to the fact that at one time, we very well may have believed the gospel. We may have believed it. 
But there came a time in your life when you really believed it. And I know that some people say, well, how much belief do you have to have? Now, listen, there's a vast difference because one belief was, yeah, I know it's true. I remember when my brother first came to me back in the early, early, early 80s, and, and, and he was trying to witness to me. He's trying to tell me, and here's what I kept telling him. I, I, I know what you're saying, Dave. I, I know it's right. He's going, no, you don't, because if you really did, your life wouldn't be the way it is. And he was right. He was absolutely telling the truth because I kept agreeing with what he was saying about Jesus, about God, and about the Word. But what I wasn't doing was grasping it. I didn't understand. And, and I didn't even have a zealousness for God, and I still had nothing according to knowledge. I mean, it was just, I was just lost. And that's the way people are outside of Christ. So that belief, you know, it's very important that we understand the difference. So righteousness of faith is contrary to righteousness by the law. It's predicated, the law is, upon what you can do. And righteousness by faith is predicated upon what Jesus has done, you know. But Paul goes on, he says, the word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. There's nothing left to be done, Charles Spurgeon said. Why would you want to keep trying to do it? Nothing left to be done. Jesus on the cross said, Tostelestai, it is finished, it's paid for. The debt has been paid. There's nothing for you to do other than cling to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is good news for you and me, because we fail so miserably every day. Oh, yeah, I'm not, you know, some people go, well, you know, like, what do you mean, Doug? Well, I mean exactly what I said. You don't have to run scales uh, for sin or even, like, because we like to do that. We even break lies down into, well, there's white lies, you know, little white lies. Or we don't even like calling them lies. We'll call them fibs. Or in the ministry, we call them speaking evangelistically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, in ministry, that's what we always said. Well, how many people was at your prayer meeting? 50, when there was 40, 23, something like that. I don't know. Speaking of, you know, I, you know, now we never do that. Right, whatever. So, but that's my, that's my point. We don't call it what it is, you know. We, we want to butter it up. We want to make it sound a little bit better. But he says, the word of God's near you. It's even in your mouth, you know. That if thou, verse 9, shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Man, I love simplicity. I love the simplicity of the gospel. Wow. When you get your fingers around that and you really embrace that and you're going, man, you know what? I know I'm a loser at best, but man, I have a Savior. You know, in the book of Hebrews, and I can't wait to get to it, Paul talking about Melchizedek who is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament, he said, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarchs paid a tenth of their tithe. I mean, consider how great Jesus Christ really is. If anybody has a means or a reason to shout for joy, man, it is us. 
It is us. I heard an old assistant pastor of mine here one time many years ago when he first started preaching with me, and he, he, he was up and he was talking to the, to the gang, and, and he made a comment. He says, man, I'm nobody, and you're nobody. I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where I found the bread. I love that. I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where I found the bread. You know, it is so about him. It's just really not about us. But, man, we can make it that way so fast. But he says that confession, you know, is, is, you know, how are we saved? Confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus, Paul said. God's righteousness is not gained by works, as Paul just made it clear in verses 4 through 8. On the contrary, it is gained by confessing and believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth, he says. Confession means to agree with God. That's what it means in the Greek, to agree with. When we confess the Lord Jesus, in essence, what we're saying is that we are agreeing what God has said. We're agreeing with everything that God has said about his son, Jesus Christ. And we're agreeing what Jesus has said about himself. We're saying that that's absolutely true. We're agreeing that Jesus is God. We're agreeing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is all-sufficient, for salvation and able to save to the uttermost all those who come. This is what we're agreeing with. We're agreeing with the testimony from God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ himself concerning Jesus Christ and all that he came to do. So we confess, and he says, confess the Lord Jesus. I want to point that out to you. That's an interesting statement there because not many Jews and certainly not many Greeks would have used that term in connection with Jesus Christ. The word Lord, Kyrios, okay? It, it, it's on the same level as emperor or God. That's what it meant. And what it meant when you said Lord, somebody, it meant that you were totally given in homage to them. You were totally obedient to whatever they were saying. And so for a Jew as Paul or even a Greek who was under Roman rule, to use that term towards Jesus Christ was a pretty profound statement. And a lot of times it's just like the word love, and I've always explained it this way. You know, we use something so often that sometimes it starts to lose its meaning, you know. It loses its meaning. And that's too bad, you know, because it just because. But Lord, we sing the songs, we, we read about it. But man, it has a very strong, strong meaning for it. The early disciples, you know, called Jesus Lord. They just ranked him right up there because they had given over total control. And he says, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. The preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the faith. Without it, there is no faith. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, and you can turn there. I'm going to read this one uh, with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to show you something. Because without the resurrection, it's funny because I read a Barner study that was, went around and he asked a, a lot of different pastors uh, from the... Uh, I think it was the Baptist faith, and I'm not knocking those because I've got a lot of friends who were Baptists. I was raised a Baptist, but like on that study there, I think there was like 60% of them said they no longer believed in the, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, 60%, I thought, that can't be true. But see, these studies, when these guys, when Barnard does these studies, they're, they're all um, anonymous. They, these guys aren't putting their name on the top of the test sheet. You understand what I'm saying? So this is why they get genuine answers. And that's why those studies from Barnard are kind of important. Uh, but they did a lot of other denominations. But it's very eye-opening. But here's what Paul said about that. 
You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 17. Paul said, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in, in Christ, are perished. If, this life, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. That's what he said. You know, the fact is, is that the resurrection is extremely important. It's the cornerstone of our faith. Without it, we're all men most miserable. What hope do we have? We don't. So the resurrection is very powerful. He said, so if you confess with your mouth that is agreed with God that all that's been said about Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. With the heart, man, believe is unto righteousness. The heart knowledge, not head knowledge. With the heart, man, believes unto, unto salvation. Under righteousness, excuse me. He says, I've said it, uh, where am I at here? Here we go. Sorry about that. Whosoever believeth on him shall, not be, uh, shall be saved. When you believe on all that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf, I can guarantee that you will not be ashamed on the day of judgment. And Paul goes on to say that there's no difference between the Greek or the Jew. What he was saying was a lot of Jewish people, and still to this day, many put a lot of stock in genealogy, bringing something like like somehow they're worthy of coming into the family of God because of the stock that they're from. And there's some Greeks that believe that. Paul said, no. He said, look, there's no difference. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever. So there's no difference. For God is a loving God, and he loves everybody the same. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them which preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And, of course, we just came through the Christmas, and we've read the story, you know, when the angel said, you know, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. This is what we preach. How shall they hear without a preacher? Paul points out here that it all goes back to preaching. The preaching of the gospel, the good news. God could have chosen any other means. He could have picked any other way to spread the, the news of salvation through Jesus Christ, but he didn't. He chose preaching, the normal way. This is God's normal way of doing it. He chose preaching to bring people to Jesus Christ. How shall they preach? It says, except they be sent. A great passage in the book of John, and you can write it down. It's John chapter 20, verse 21. He says, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, so send I you. That's what we're here for, gang. We're here to go. We've been sent. So I want to challenge you tonight, and I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm giving you a challenge. Think about it. I'm not asking you to answer this. Answer it for yourself. If you've been a Christian for more than a year, and many of us have, if you have been, how many people, and, and you, only you answer this. Answer it for yourself. How many people have you ever personally led to faith in Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about how many people you brought to church. Because sometimes we put the cart before the horse. Okay, Nothing wrong with bringing people to church. I mean, hopefully they'll get saved. Don't get me wrong on this. But how many people have you ever personally led to faith in Jesus? How many people have you sat down and said, hey, you know, you, you preached the gospel, you shared the gospel with them, and then you said, you want to accept Jesus Christ? Think about it. See, we've been sent. 
God has sent it. You know what stops most of us from doing it? We're afraid we're going to offend somebody. That's what stops most of us. I've asked, I've talked to people. I, I, you know, out of the, the guys that I used to preach to, there's many churches that came out of Calvary Chapel. Because I always saw my job as a teacher of preachers. Because that's what we do. You know, Paul told Timothy, I've taught you that you might be able also to teach other people or other men who are worthy also. Well, we're all worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God wants us to share the gospel. It's good news. But how many people have you personally led to Christ? I'm not saying lay some guilt trip like I did on myself when I was younger. Remember the map? <laughs> I was going to win the whole town as angel did. That doesn't happen that way. So I'm not trying to lay guilt trip. I'm trying to say challenge yourself. Have you? Because I've asked pastors. I've asked pastors. I feel sorry for some pastors because they get into that and it's they, because this is the only people they see. And a lot of them, the only people they ever get to talk to are people who are already saved. So they never get to experience sometimes that leading people to Christ. It's a joy, man, to bring somebody into the family of God. And sometimes we don't do it because we're afraid we're going to offend them. Well, I would rather offend somebody into heaven than to appease them into hell. You know, because anybody who dies outside of Jesus Christ is, is not going to make it, gang. You know, we need to be winning the loss. So it's, 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 Paul says, hey, how shall they preach except they be sent? Jesus says, even as the Father sent me, so send I you. We've been sent. How beautiful, he says, are the feet of those that preach the gospel. Paul says that the feet of those that preach the gospel are beautiful because they bring peace and glad tidings of good things. I love telling people, man, that your sins have been forgiven. I love that. I love having the ability to do that. I love seeing people feel like the weight of the world has fallen off their back. I loved watching people watch the lights come on. You know, to see somebody's life totally change and God allowing you to be a part of that. That's a blessing, man. That's a blessing that nothing else will do. I got to be honest with you. It's so cool. And I'm not saying start cutting notches on your Bible. I've got another one for Jesus. Don't do that. But just, you know, how, how often have you? And if not, why? You know, there's always an opportunity, you know. Don't be afraid. You, you'll be shocked. I mean, I, even when I was knocking on door, I mean, you know, when I did that crazy stunt when I was younger, God used it. It wasn't like I didn't lead anybody to the Lord. I led all kinds of people to Christ. Got the door slammed in my face a few times. <laughs> few times too you know is everybody going to say yes no they're not some people are going to tell you i don't care some people are going to reject but not rejecting you they're rejecting the lord you know preach the gospel you can do it verse 16 but they have not all obeyed the gospel for isaiah saith, lord who hath believed our report so not everybody has and certainly of the jews they didn't so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Verily, yes, verily, he says, their sound went into all the earth, and their words into the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Paul says. This is why... The teaching of the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is so important. It's important that we go through the Word of God. It's important that you not only go through the Word of God, but it's important that you be a self-feeder at home. Take yourself through the Word of God. You know, do it on a regular basis. 
you know, this is, this is extremely, this is verse by verse, we call it expository teaching in theology. It's important. And because as we read, the Bible says, you know, of course, in Ephesians 5, 26, that we're being washed by the word because we are the body of Christ, that he might present his bride without spot or blame by the washing of water by the word. Man, as we read the word of God, you know, it is so refreshing to be refreshed. You know, you, sometimes you start getting beat, you start getting down. First thing I do is, hey, man, I think I'm going to take a shower. You know, what's it do? It wakes you up. Wakes you up, you get out, you fix your hair. If you, I don't have much, but I, you, know, you fix your hair a little bit. And you, know, you, be, you be, look more presentable. And, and it's the same way when you immerse yourself in the Word of God and you're just going through it and you're just absorbing it. And you're soaking. Man, you feel clean again. You just feel clean. Because you know what? We walk through this world and we get crud on our feet. We get dirt on us, man, just from being around it. Can you imagine? You walk down the mall and you are so bombarded with pornography and stuff that's illicit and just the scum of the world. And we become dull to it, but don't think that it doesn't take a toe on us. It does. But how do I get clean? I just dive into the Word of God, man. And after a few chapters, I'm feeling good again because I'm reminded that Jesus done took care of it all. Because after a while, you walk through this life and you start feeling pretty funky. You know? That's why it's important. You know? So, anyway, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Paul said, had they not all heard? So if faith comes by hearing, here, here's what the question is. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, well, what about the Jews? I mean, they seem like they've been cast off is what the question is. Did they not hear? He even says, did they, did they not hear? Did Israel not hear? Paul says, yeah, they heard. Paul answers, this was an emphatic Yes. In fact, he says that their sound went into all the earth and that the word of God, the law at that particular time, went to all parts wherein the Jews had been dispersed. So it went to the Jews. They all heard it. But faith that is saving faith must be accompanied by belief. And this is why they didn't receive it. Why? Because of unbelief. They didn't believe it. You know, they didn't believe it was too simple. They saw the law, and just like Paul did before his conversion, they thought that it was a mandate on what to do. Here's what you got to do. And Paul says, no, 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 the law was spiritual. He says, when I realized it was spiritual, I died because I realized even though I hadn't committed a lot of these things, I had thought about it. And because I thought about it, according to James, I was guilty of it all, and so I became condemned. So that's what the law does. The law condemns, but it points us to Christ. So they reason it. It seems like they didn't. They didn't get it. Was simply because of unbelief. In Hebrews eleven uh, six, you can just write it down if you will. He says, "But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For all those who come to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him." I love that verse. You know, but it's mixed. You see that He says, "Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For all those who come to God must believe." That's that relying on trusting and clinging to all that Jesus has done. We just trust in God. You know, not placing any merit upon anything we've done. If you're doing good works, great. Those are awesome. Nothing wrong with it. But don't think it merits you anything. God blesses you because of his son and because you've placed your faith in him. I love trusting in Jesus Christ. I love going, hey, you know what? Even on a good day, I'm probably failing miserably because I judge myself pretty good. So do you. We all do. 
you know, I always say, you know, like when it comes to music, I might be my own worst critic, but probably not really. <laughs> you know, the truth is when you really get down into crevice of that heart, you know, and you start really estimating how you look at yourself, we all estimate ourselves. You know, even Paul said, let not a man think more highly of himself than he ought. But most of us do. You know, we really do. We, we, we want to be humble around people. We say, well, no, I'm really not. No, come on. You, you know, most of us do. But the fact is when we're standing in the light of Jesus Christ, oh, my gosh, you know, we all pale. There's none righteous, no, not one, not in the sight of him. But only by him and through him can we claim that. And that's the beauty of it because that keeps me reliant upon him because I don't have to look at myself. I, my failures, I go, well, okay, I screwed up. You know, I take it to the Lord and whatever. But I can rely on Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. Therefore, faith, it's impossible to please God without believing. So you've got to have faith, but that faith has to be coupled with that heartfelt belief. Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not, talking about the Gentiles. I was made manifest, that means made seen, unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Keep it in mind, Israel had a zeal for God. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They knew the word, but they didn't know what it meant. Why? They missed the spirit of it. They missed the spirit. Heard an old man say this one time, and I'll close with this. If all you have is the word of God, if all you have is the Bible, you will dry up. If all you relish in is the spirit of God, you will blow up. One has to be done in the power of the other. Because the Holy Spirit is who comes along, that paraclete, the one who comes alongside, and he leads us into all truth. It's the Holy Ghost that is leading us and guiding us into the areas that he will have us to do. And opening our eyes and our hearts and everything to everything there is that the Lord wants us to do and, and, in, in those particular leads. But it has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where the Jews failed. They don't even acknowledge that there is a Holy Spirit. They're, di they're divided over that. I mean, you know the Sadducees and the Pharisees were divided over the simple fact of the resurrection. That's why the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in it, you know? So the fact is, is that even today, though, you've got people divided over the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you right now, that's the most frustrating thing in the world is to be doing something for God in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it becomes frustrating, it becomes old, and you will eventually get tired of it. And you will eventually get angry, and you will eventually get this and that, and all the things that come along with not doing something in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we're being led by the Spirit, there's love, peace, joy, long-suffering, mercy, temper, all those things that accompany. Why? Because those are the fruits of the Spirit. And doing those things for God becomes a, a get-to, not a have-to. You know, we just do it because we love the Lord, because he that's forgiven much loves much. And it really is that simple. Well, next week's even better. <laughs>